Welcome back. I'm Max Bergman, director of the Stewart Center and Europe-Russia-Eurasia program at CSIS. And I'm Maria Snigovaya, senior fellow for Russia and Eurasia. And you're listening to Russian Roulette, a podcast discussing all things Russia and Eurasia from the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Russian Roulette. I'm Max Bergman, here again with my two CSIS colleagues, Maria Snegovaya, our senior fellow for Russia and Eurasia, and Michael Kimmage, one of our non-resident fellows and a professor of history at Catholic University. Today, we're going to be jumping into a wide-ranging conversation on the state of the war in Ukraine, what's happening with the counteroffensive, its implications for the transatlantic alliance, what's happening inside of Russia, and, of course, uh, what's happening inside of Ukraine. So let, let's, let's get straight into it. Michael, maybe let's sort of put your your former State Department policy planning hat back on. And, and how do you kind of see the, the current state of events? You know, Ukraine looks like it's about or, is, or has already started with a counteroffensive. How do you see things playing out right now? I think there are two important frames for the counteroffensive. And one to me feels a little bit more journalistic and the other to me is more relevant for the larger policy debate and discussion about U.S. and Western policy toward Ukraine. And the journalistic framing of the counteroffensive is sort of in do or die terms, that this is Ukraine's last chance. This is going to be the crucial event of the summer, you know, an inflection point. This is sort of pivotal. Uh, Everything that follows now is going to be dependent on whether Ukraine can either get its borders back to where they were before the war or to where they were in 2014, or if the war stalemates, uh, or if the counteroffensive sort of leads to incremental or major Russian gains, perhaps over the course of the spring or the summer. These are all, of course, scenarios, I think, that are being widely discussed and thought about by the Ukrainian military and its uh, supporters. But I would be very cautionary about this journalistic framing. Uh, I think it pushes the narrative of the war too much into the next couple of months. It compresses the narrative of the war too much. And I think it probably overestimates how potentially important the counteroffensive will be. It will be important, but uh, I don't think it's do or die. So that leads me to, I think, the second framing of the counteroffensive. And this is to see it as part of a longer continuum, going back really to maybe the first two months before the war, when Ukraine was getting ready to the defense of Kiev and some of the summer successes of the Ukrainian military, and then to the very dramatic successes of September and October, which I think have really created the foundation for very sustained Western support to Ukraine. Uh, And, you know, I think it's really crucial to think of Ukrainian security in 12-month blocks or two, three-year blocks and to fit the counteroffensive into that narrative. And so in that case, if the counteroffensive underperforms, uh, that would be regrettable, but it's not the end of the uh, it's not the end of the line. And if the counteroffensive overperforms, it probably still won't end the war, and so there'll be a need to keep on going. And so I would really emphasize the kind of long durée approach to this war and make the counteroffensive one important chapter within that longer continuum, but not bet the house on the counteroffensive. It seems a little bit like we've had kind of a shifting of of narratives about the counteroffensive. I think there was an initial kind of narrative where folks were were very optimistic. This is going to be the game changing thing that will sort of you know the Ukrainians you know could end the war and get to Crimea. And then there was sort of a counter reaction to that, which I think makes a lot of sense to say, hold on, the counteroffensive uh, is not the end all and be all. But I think where we sort of ended up is kind of in a place where. 
there's, uh, I think, a status quo bias and sort of a uh, kind of a presumption of pessimism. I think in some of the leaked documents of noting that, it, you know, some U- the U.S. military was somewhat skeptical of, U- of how far Ukraine could advance. And all that's probably, you know, warranted. Everyone's been sort of fretting over the counteroffensive, rightly so, but uh, has sort of left us switching between these sort of two narratives of it's either going to nothing will occur or everything will occur. And I think your point, I I really take on board that there's a bit of a, you know, some progress could definitely occur, but it's probably not going to resolve the war or sort of lead to some sort of magical defeat. I'm curious, Maria, what, what your sort of take is on the kind of the current state of play. I agree completely, and I think there are a lot of dangers and uh, in something that's pretty much bound to happen after the counteroffensive is for the dovish groups within the Western community to re-emerge and start calling for some sort of peace settlement, right? Blaming uh, the Western fatigue in supporting uh, this war, uh, that it's time to get this over with, right? It's not a surprise. Frankly, we already see early signs of that happening. And I think that's essentially, it's highly important, first of all, not to have overinflated expectations, uh, along with the same lines that Michael has pointed out, uh, but also to prevent that from happening, because it's pretty much guaranteed. I think any settlement at this point uh, would be a disaster, very likely a disaster for Ukraine. We're essentially looking at another Minsk three, even if it's called, I don't know, maybe Kishinev, Chisinau, <laughs> or any other, any, any other European capital. Unfortunately, that's just not how this war ends, most likely. The, the war should end in some sort of very assured guarantees with Ukraine for Ukraine. Otherwise, again, we're all certain that Russia will going to try, will have a lot of incentives to try and repeat it all over again. I, I'm curious if maybe we can talk a little bit about how the situation kind of maybe appears right now from Moscow. The Russians just went on a, a months, months long offensive that has resulted in basically nothing. They've lost a lot of people. Their you know, artillery may be short. And it looks like morale on the front lines uh, is, seems to be fairly low. Now, there's you know, sometimes a reporting bias that maybe we get. But I'm curious, and, and I've seen some, some flickers of kind of defeatism sort of creeping in a bit into some of the kind of comment conversations emanating from Moscow. I'm curious, Michael and Maria, for, if you're picking up on any of that, or, what, or what's the sort of sense in Moscow of how this war is going? One very quick point about Ukraine, just about the counteroffensive, that there's a narrative about Ukraine now that should be told to which the counteroffensive is still peripheral. And this is, you know, the extraordinarily substantial support that Ukraine is uh, amassing. And here I would emphasize the trip that Zelensky just made to multiple European capitals and especially the very warm reception he gave to his German counterparts in Berlin and the very substantial commitment that Germany has made to Ukrainian security. I wonder if in the long term, this is not the real story of the spring of uh, of 2023, that Ukraine is just marshalling long term, very, very substantial support. And that may, that may be the thing on which the war turns more than battlefield events of the next couple of weeks uh, and months. To continue with that, and we'll get to the, the question I asked, but because Maria, I think, quite rightly notes that there could be this dovish, you know, component if the if the counteroffensive peters out. But to your point, you know, there is a huge commitment from uh, from Germany, more than two billion euro package with lots of really advanced weaponry. 
So it does seem that European support is is holding a bit firm here and that hopefully would, would continue to go in, in 2024. I'm curious, Maria, if that sort of alleviates some of your concerns or if if the counteroffensive just doesn't seem to go well, whether that will quickly, those voices that will say that Ukraine needs to sort of enter into premature negotiation will, will rise again. I agree. No, I hope, I hope Max, you're totally right. And that will be kind of good enough. But we've seen different statements from different policymakers, right? So it ultimately ends up being the compromise between different voices and who is louder. So far, so far, the West, I have to say, has shown remarkable resilience. And it seems that everybody understands at this point, the war is not just about Ukraine, which has definitely deserves at this point like by far, right, being the, uh, the part of the Western community. But it's also uh, the, war for the, the fight for the international security going forward. What is missing still is some sort of vision, though, on this side of Western policymakers with all these resources and all these commitments that are being made. And by the way, hopefully uh, more investment in the long-term capacity on the side of the Western defense sectors and our production facilities, which I know is an issue these days. It would also good to see some vision of what this type of outcome uh, that's desirable, preferred by the West. It's still not very clear. And that's why I think that allows a lot of discretion to different voices, right? Because they can essentially try and offer different solutions. That's something that's, I think, still uh, not there. Everybody sort of keeps pushing it back to Ukraine, what Ukraine wants. But we know what Ukraine wants, right? Ukraine wants its territory back. That's hardly a mystery. Uh, the question is, is that achievable? And of within the spectrum of the options that are achievable, what is the desired preferred outcome uh, by the West? Yeah, I think maybe I, I, I might pick up on that and then, and then we'll eventually get back to the other question. But for me... I think there's a real question of continued security assistance from the U.S. and how this is funded. And I really recommend a piece that Michael Kaufman and Rob Lee did in Foreign Affairs, sort of outlining the need for a long-term strategy. I think the point I would make to that, though, is that the administration is having a lot of problems outlining a long-term strategy because it doesn't have the funding runway, doesn't know whether the funds will be there uh, to, you know, for Ukraine in 2024 and 2025. So if you hear Undersecretary of Defense Colin Call describe this, you know, and he was asked about the F-16s, I think, in an interview with Foreign Policy uh, and whether the U.S. would write F-16s because there's sort of this narrative that America is being self-deterred. And his response was, well, if we provide F-16s, that's not going to be impactful to the current counteroffensive. That'll be something six months down the line. And we have the funding runway that we have right now that uh, lasts for the next few months. And we are focused on getting Ukraine what it needs right now for its counteroffensive. And so what you see is the administration sort of directly rebutting uh, Mike Kaufman and Rob Lee saying, we have to focus on the short term because we don't have the funding to focus on the long term. And I think that's a crucial point that is sort of the administration, I think, though, is not articulating then to Congress what it actually wants from Congress. And this will become, I think, a, a, a real question. You know, we're having a debt ceiling fight. There's going to be a budget fight. Where in the kind of, you know, Rubik's Cube of Congress does a Ukraine supplemental funding package materialize? And how much is in it? Is there any economic assistance? Is it all military assistance? What What is that going to look like? And that conversation is sort of happening really under the radar screen, I think, in the halls of Congress. But it's in White House Ledge Affairs, I'm sure is, you know, focused on this. But it's really unclear to me 
where the money will be, and that makes it impossible, frankly, for you know the the folks at the Pentagon and State Department to outline kind of a, a clear long term strategy for Ukraine. And that's a problem. Well, at, at risk of stunning glib about this, I mean, it's a war. And I think in a certain sense, this is how all wars are fought. I mean, there's an element of improvisation and things have to be sort of, you know, sort of ginned up where possible and when possible uh, in timelines and timeframes that are often determined by domestic political contingencies. I mean, I think that you can at least say so far so good in that regard, that it's been a messy process from the beginning. But I think if you would look closely at most wars that the U.S. has, has fought, you would find that there is this kind of fairly chaotic process behind it. If I could add just one other concern to the ones that you outline, Max, in terms of the U.S. Uh, side of things. I mean, there is the question of how unified the American electorate is behind a basic set of war aims. I'm frankly not personally that pessimistic about this. I think that that support is sort of there, but it's obviously going to be put to the test in the course of a campaign that will probably be between Trump and Biden with a lot of, you know, sort of media frenzy around that. And that's going to be uh, not effortless for the Biden administration to navigate as more questions come about what's the future course of the U.S. But just sort of suggesting that the U.S. is behind the war to the degree that the Biden administration can credibly do that is also an important part of the war effort. On that same note, Max, may I ask you a question? Uh, looking back at your time at the State Department, when you worked on security assistance, uh, what are your thoughts when analyzing uh, Ukraine preparedness? Uh, Ukraine keeps asking for more weapons, more material. It doesn't really look like it gets everything that it wants. At this point, uh, do you think uh, it has gotten enough? Or if not, which, which systems in particular do you think it needs to receive or that haven't already been sent to Kiev uh, that should be sent? Yeah, no, great question. So look, I, I think there's so much appreciation for the current conundrum that, that Ukraine finds itself in. You know, I think initially there's a, there's been a few points where the White House's administration has announced massive packages and then you know the response from Ukraine is thanks, but we need all this other stuff too. But I think there's an understanding that that's exactly what any country would do in their situation, that there's immense amount of appreciation from the Ukrainians for what the United States is doing, but there's also a desire to, to provide more. So frankly, I'm very skeptical of the narrative that the administration is being sort of self-deterred. There's been a lot of focus on a lot of you know individual weapon systems, such as attackums, which are sort of equivalent to the Storm Shadow missile that is sort of being used. A Storm Shadow, I think, is more advanced. Here's my take on, on, on this, is that there are multiple reasons and challenges when it comes to providing military assistance and multiple reasons probably not to provide a certain system. So I am sure there are voices probably in the White House, State Department and other places that are like, this could be viewed, you know, attackums with long range, could be viewed as escalatory. Maybe there's some questions about whether we would trust the Ukrainians not to use them against Russia. I think, you know, on Russian territory, I think those have been alleviated. But there's also, you know, attackums are in short supply. They're, what I've heard is they're needed in the Indo-Pacific. You know, in the Korean theater, there's you know, a country called North Korea that has nuclear weapons. And so there's multiple reasons, you know, for the U.S. that sort of run against providing the Ukraine. And then sometimes what happens, and this is what I think we saw with the Leopard 2 tank, is that it's convenient for political leaders to grab a weapon system and say, we're not going to provide this because we view it as escalatory. See, we're showing restraint when really it's... There's all re sorts of reasons you're not providing it. But once a political leader says something is escalatory, it's not a military question. There's a lot of military folks who are like, well, this you know, isn't escalatory because of X, Y, and Z. All really valid. But it is escalatory because when a chancellor or a 
president or prime minister says it's escalatory, if you then provide it, it is. So I think that's been some of the restraint. I think when it comes to F-16s and other things, Ukraine will need an air force. But Ukraine also just needs artillery and other things to get through the counteroffensive. So I think the administration is probably making the, the correct balance right now in prioritizing the short term. I think what I would just quickly on Michael's point, and then maybe we can pivot to, to focus on you know Russia and, and what's happening inside of Russia. I think there are probably more than 90% of the House of Representatives would support a massive amount of funding for Ukraine right now. The problem is that Kevin McCarthy became Speaker of the House with only a five-vote majority. It was a very tenured speakership. And we know there's a good portion or a decent portion of the Republican caucus, maybe just 20 people, but that's enough, that are opposed to additional assistance for Ukraine. So this makes it a high-wire act for Kevin McCarthy to get this through and maintain his speakership. And the way the funding works is that, you know, the way it worked before is Biden would call Pelosi, who was Speaker of the House, and Pelosi would bring the legislation, say, we want $5 billion, and they would get back $10 billion, and then they would go, say, we want 20 and they'd get back 40 There was this constant back and forth. So I think there's tremendous support from the American public. It's just the political dynamics of how the, legis- how this kinda, the, the legislative geometry, I think, is going to be quite challenging. Uh, no one has articulated how this gets through, but there is a quiet confidence, I will say, that it will. The one other thing I should say is that even if the, there is no additional funding, the U.S. has an ability to reallocate and retransfer money from the $800-plus billion Pentagon defense budget. You, know, you can find lots of you know, t- billions in the couch cushions in the, in the Pentagon, but it becomes a lot harder when you're making those kind of basic trade-offs, uh, trade-offs and the, the bureaucratic fight. And if you think things are going slowly now, man, they will go much more slowly if you're going to have to – if there's going to be real bureaucratic losers within the Pentagon – bureaucracy. But maybe let's pivot and talk and go, go back to the question on, on Russia. And maybe Maria, to start with you and then to Michael about what are you seeing inside of Russia? How is this being looked at inside of uh, what's the Moscow perspective here? First of all, and to follow up on what you've been, uh, we've been discussing so far, some promising signs I'd have of uh, uh, deep uh, depression and uh, fear and uh, resentment uh, spreading across Russian military circles or near military circles. Max, you've been discussing Atakums and also Storm Shadow uh, cruise missiles uh, that the UK just uh, provided to Ukraine, kudos to the United Kingdom. Uh, by the way, uh, Jeff Watlin from Russia just published a report yesterday saying that uh, they actually are likely to make a big difference for Russia's logistic and command control. Putin them at risk, also adjusting a little bit to the new, because like both sides are adjusting, both Ukraine and Russia. So that's kind of the new development, which uh, will eliminate some of the earlier advantages uh, Russian army had. So that's interesting. We've also seen some uh, promising sides of early panic a couple of days ago when uh, Ukraine soldiers more, the troops were moving, making some moves into Bakhmut. Some people confused that with early signs of counteroffensive. Probably many people have seen these uh, videos of uh, Russian troops fleeing in fear abandoning their positions, hopefully an early precursor of what is to come uh, if Ukraine was to implement a major counteroffensive. Of course, also Prigozhin's video uh, when he's pleading, cursing, also uh, blaming some unknown, unidentified old man of all the uh, all the things that are not going right uh, in within the Russian military. In particular, the munition uh, becomes, as it seems, like a big deal for the Russian army. Uh, having said that, as always the case, Russia is weaker when, than we're afraid of. 
than we are worried, but it's not as weak, weak enough, not as weak as we hope. So domestically, there's also the reality of huge resources being redirected into the import substitution web effort. Uh, Russia just uh, announced, I think, uh, about a trillion rubles, which is equivalent uh, to I think, several hundred billion dollars into the production of drones. And there's more information coming in multiple directions. So Russia definitely hopes to sustain this as a war of attrition going forward. And this is why, as we have discussed, the, the Ukrainian counteroffensive becomes uh, so important. In our report, we have also shown uh, recently, right, UMAX, uh, one of the co-authors, that unfortunately Russia still has uh, a capacity uh, to do that. Despite all the losses that it suffered, it still has enough to at least, as it looks on surface at the very least, to hold on to the territories it already controls and to continuously inflict uh, damage on um, Ukraine. In terms of the public opinion, not much change here. There was a little bit of a decline of the war, of the war support in March, but then there was a little bit of an increase of the war support in April. If you trust Russian polls at all, ultimately it means that nothing changes at all, not, and it doesn't really even matter. The economic situation is not too bad, and the moods the opinions, the economic expectations actually are remarkably optimistic. This has been this characteristics of uh, the Russian public opinion since the start of the war. It's very unclear where society gets this optimism from, but these are the expectations and, and they matter. Uh, the last but not the least, uh, just a week ago, a very concerning poll came out that shows that about a third of Russians would approve of the use of nukes by the Russian government. I mean, a third... Maybe it does not look like a lot, given the general approval levels of 78% for everything that Putin does. But this is also under situation when the propaganda on state TV channels hasn't yet picked up this topic, right? There's hardly any doubt that these um, figures will uh, reach above 50% uh, when the state propaganda finds a way to explain it. If it wasn't us, they will say it. the Ukrainians, who don't even have the nukes, but doesn't really matter for Russian TV channels, would have used them first. Michael, maybe maybe over to you. Maria's painting a, a, a pretty uh, bleak picture there. Do, do you concur? I do. I mean, I think that I would, uh, in a sense, offer a, a similar analysis, maybe in slightly different terms. And I think it amounts to a paradox that the war continues to go very badly for Russia. I mean, they really have not have a, had a success since the the taking of, of Mariupol. I can't quite remember when that was sort of solidified for for Russia, but it's a while ago. And you know, the last six months have, have demonstrated really no progress at all. And you do have a kind of unique public infighting among the you know, sort of military circles broadly construed, which is just without precedent. I don't know how much it means. I think there's often a lot of grumbling in wartime and resentment that leaders have for each other and competing for Putin's approval and all of that. So it may just be, you know, sort of that kind of churn. Uh, but it is remarkable how insulting Prigozhin has been to to Putin and to the war effort, and it may signify something, certainly a high degree of frustration, which is what I would assume. Uh, and I can't imagine that morale is very good, just from what one gathers of how people are being brought into the military, how they're being being treated in the military, you know, issues of pay and uh, just, uh, you know, the sort of overall trajectory of the war. Uh, would have to point toward bad morale among the Russian soldiers. So that's one half of the paradox. But the other half is Putin's diabolically successful project of separating Russia from the West. It's proceeding apace. Uh, it's been a radical project for the last 15, 16 months. It shows no sign, uh, no signs of abating. Uh, and economically so far, 
You know, it's not, I think, probably what most Russians would have chosen before the war, but economically, it's sort of worked well enough. Uh, and Russia does have a network of countries that it can turn to for arms, as as we've seen with Iran or to, to China in terms of certain economic deals. And Putin has, of course, expelled from the country those people who think differently and have the courage to say so in public. So it's it's almost the Russia that uh, Putin has dreamed of creating, uh, is strange to say, but it's a kind of increasingly autonomous Russia and increasingly Russian Russia, uh, less and less European, uh, less and less Western. And even if the war were to stop tomorrow, that project would take a long time to uh, to unravel. So that's the other side of the paradox. The war has been a catastrophe, but this project of separating Russia from the West, as Putin has has chosen to do, has so far worked and will be uh, will be with us for a long time to come, I'm, I'm sad to say. And maybe I, I tend to try to pick up on 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 green shoots that maybe <laughs> do or do not exist. It does strike me that there's some sense of sort of defeatism that is sort of creeping in. There's some some of the kind of oligarch conversations and and some of the press coverage and comments emanating Prigozhin, but uh, but elsewhere of a sense of kind of I think real panic. I mean, we haven't talked about the, the Victory Day festivities in Moscow, but I mean, how pathetic that there's just sort of one tank that is, you know, of a vintage variety being, you know, rolled through the Kremlin and really curtailing of, you know, what is, you know, a, a big Putin-led holiday does strike me of, A, there there are real shortages in the defense, uh, in the defense industry and in, in Russian uh, materiel and its equipment. I also get a sense that there's real concern about the reach of the Ukrainians now. The drone uh, attack against uh, the Kremlin, which some were suggesting a false flag, I think the preponderance of evidence looks like, no, that was the Ukrainians uh, taking action in the, in the reach, is leading to a degree of concern. And this is where, for me, you know, when we think about counteroffensives, I was thinking about this the other day, that, you know, one of the most famous uh, counteroffensives in history is the Tet Offensive in 1968. And, you know, the Tet Offensive from a military perspective, you know, was either a wash or a defeat for the North Vietnamese. But what it did is it really burst the bubble of the American public of where the war in Vietnam was going when you saw, you know, North Vietnamese breaching the embassy compound in Saigon. And when I think about Crimea, for instance, when I think about a, a Ukrainian counteroffensive, to me, if the Ukrainians make territorial gains enough where they can suddenly put Crimea under kind of you know repeated bombardment, that strikes me as a very visceral L, a very visceral loss to Russia and the Russian public. Because the, when the war started, Crimea was fine. And I think the Russians very much view Crimea as part of Russia. And so suddenly Crimea not being safe to go to this summer and actually being, you know, a, a really dangerous place. And my God, the war is coming to Russia. I think, you know, you could start to see the, the, the bubble bursting a little bit in terms of public perception. But that's probably too optimistic a take. But I'm curious what, what you all think. Definitely, by the way, uh, the concerns on the Russian about the the, the Ukrainian forthcoming counteroffensive certainly is um, of a concern to the Russian public opinion. Over sixty percent uh, of the Russian public says that's worrisome for them. That's probably reflective of the also propagandist uh, debate. That means it's being discussed, as is the case with Western supplies of arms uh, to Ukraine. Over seventy-seven percent are concerned about it, which is a lot. Having said that. The Russian public opinion since the start of the war 
I mean, to the extent that we can really trust the numbers, of course, there's all these reservations that maybe people who really oppose or are really worried they don't answer the polls. Existing evidence does not confirm that. There are studies who that looked specifically at the people who refused to answer certain questions and they did not find major differences with the rest of the uh, sample. Having said that, certainly there's an avalanche of bad news uh, for Russians and no matter how desperate you are to preserve your shield, your comfort, right? It's really, it's increasingly hard to do when there's actually a terrorist explosion happening next to where you live, for example. Having said that, yes, uh, we see that they are aware of the terrorist attacks. They are uh, somewhat aware of the drone uh, situation. Uh, one of the, by the way, uh, the Kremlin is also very, con- uh, very careful about maintaining the picture of normal- normalcy. And when it comes to Ukrainian drones, the Kremlin has not shown the video, the very impressive video when the drones actually approach uh, the presidential palace. They've shown the uh, picture, the video of the regular uh, Red Square situation with nothing like that happening. Having said all of this, uh, we see that the Russian public opinion is remarkably resilient. Like no matter what happens, they still uh, preserve their degree of normalcy. And this is where, going back to my uh, Michael's point about uh, Putin's successful uh, like detaching, decoupling Russia from the West, I have to say that the public opinion mood is also very, uh, is doing a lot in that regard as well. It's just very weird uh, to follow the trends in the Russian, and look how Russians are desperate to make, pretend that things are normal. And we see that consistency. And when, even in the situations when Putin makes it very hard for Russians, when he announces mobilization and uh, the approval ratings decline by about 10 percentage points, they still bounce back in about one or two weeks and uh, uh, the society keeps pretending uh, that things are fine. So it's not just uh, Putin, essentially, separating Russia from the West. It's also Russians, in a lot of ways, acting weirdly, frankly, and trying to distance themselves from our normalcy as far as possible, despite not accepting the reality, I think. So I love the TED example, Max. I think it's a great one to bring up, and I'll borrow a word from Lawrence Friedman from one of his recent substacks, which I think underscores the importance of the analogy. And, and Friedman argues that the West needs to, Ukraine and the West need to impress upon either the Kremlin or the Russian population or both a sense of, of the futility of this war. And in a way, the futility is built in because the strategic objectives that Putin announced are not objectives that he's going to realize. Uh, and the war is already quite costly to Russia. And so I think it's, in a way, arguing what's true about the war uh, and trying to get that across. And so if the counteroffensive contributes to that sense of futility, I think that that really amounts almost to a strategic uh, objective. Obviously, Kremlin matters more because they're the immediate decision makers, but the population of Russia matters too. I would just say, you know, sort of again, you know, digging into the the Tet analogy, I mean, Tet was January 1968. And the reason it was so effective is because it was part of a campaign season. So it got, you know, LBJ to step down in part because he had oversold the war and was overly optimistic about its uh, its outcome. And that's just not where Russia is. I mean, there is a presidential campaign coming up perhaps in, in 2024, but it's not, you know, sort of a meaningful one. You know, Russia has become a dictatorship. Uh, and also it's hard to say that Vietnam is to the United States as Ukraine or Crimea is to Russia. It's closer and it has, I think, a sort of higher, almost in quotation marks, existential value, certainly for Putin and maybe for many Russians as well. So I think to sort of give up on it or to respond by pulling out of the war or trying to come to terms uh, is unlikely for now. But I think that that's where the war goes over the course of time. 
And so, you know, even if the counteroffensive doesn't get all the futility that we need impressed upon the Kremlin and the Russian population, it may get a third of it. And then the other two thirds is going to just come uh, over time. So I think the argument is exactly right, but the time frame is going to be slower, I'm afraid, than, than it was in, in 1968. Yeah, no, I also think that this sort of impacts Ukrainian strategy a little bit in the counteroffensive, because if your goal is to create sort of a shock to the Russian public, and, and then it's really about just certain territorial advances where you can then maybe put Crimea under threat, or is it more to focus on basically the, you know, if, if Russia is unsalvageable and they're always going to be the threat, then you focus really on just trying to destroy as much of the Russian military capacity as pro- possible. No, they're not mutually exclusive efforts, but it'll be interesting to see how this counteroffensive uh, plays out. I think there's been a lot of, I think, pessimism, a lot of, I think, in the in this podcast, we've been, I think, fairly sober. I do think there's a, a case where we'll see how Ukraine does now that it can employ really modern Western weaponry and it's, you know, held forces back that have been been, been training in, in Germany and Poland and other places. And then those forces will move into Ukraine sort of well-rested. Michael, you started us off saying, you know, we shouldn't put everything on the counteroffensive. I think that's totally right. I do also think that this could be, you know, historically pivotal in, in, in the direction uh, that it, it has for the, for the war. So, you know, we'll all be watching very closely. If I could just jump in with one little point, I mean, I think that the Ukrainian decision not to let Bakhmut fall, if, you know, sort of what you're describing is is correct, Max, about the psychological aspect of the war is a very, very smart decision, because it's sort of, even by that metric, I mean, Bakhmut is a town, was a town of 70,000 people, I think, before the war, and, and no military analyst has argued that it's sort of crucial to the war, for either, either for Ukraine or for uh, or for Russia, but just not being able to take it has got to be so frustrating. And that takes us back in some ways to Progosian and I think some of the fractures that are there in the military high command, which is no doubt making the war much more difficult for Russia to fight. So that's an effective way to think about the war, the psychological element. And sort of final point could be that in that sense, you would really want to have low expectations for the counteroffensive in the general public. That makes a lot of sense because if it doesn't pan out that well, then fine. You know, you sort of, you, you end up being right. And if it does better than expected, you get that sort of surprise uh, and the momentum that comes from the surprise that, as it did in September and October on the on the Ukrainian side. Yeah, and now uh, the Russians have this real dilemma about what to do in Bakhmut that they haven't fully been able to take it. Now that uh, the Ukrainians are going on the counteroffensive of sort of outflanking the city, do the Russians pour more forces in there to bolster it? And then does that uh, open them, you know, weaken their lines elsewhere. And I think that this is going to be one of the real military challenges for the Russians is that it's actually still a very large front and the Ukrainians can figure out ways to cause them problems on in multiple directions. Now, I think it's pretty clear Ukraine will want to head south to Melitopol and, and, and into Zaporizhia. But, you know, this is going to be, I think, very difficult defense for for a pretty poorly trained, bad morale Russian force. Maria, maybe maybe over to you for some for some final thoughts. I completely agree. Morale uh, has been absolutely crucial in this war. That's one of the reasons why it ended up being so hard to sort of predict. And hopefully uh, its dynamic will go precisely in the expected uh, direction. Uh, hopefully Ukrainians will uh preserve this advantage. I just don't see where Russians can get it. So early signs certainly are pointing in that regard. Having said that, regardless of how a Russian military performs on the ground, as I mentioned before, it appears that it's actually very hard for Putin to 
lose this war in the minds of the Russian society. At this point, um, I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely curious <laughs> what is it going to take. Even uh, losing Crimea, frankly, is unlikely to turn, as it seems, uh, the Russian public opinion. And it's actually almost scary to what extent uh, the regime is resilient. So there's all these sources of uh, domestic support that we did not understand uh, before. They're actually much stronger uh, than we expected. Having said that, it's also true that authoritarian regimes tends to fall unpredictably, right? The, for, uh, the, the famous this threshold avalanche of um, changes in public opinion mood is very, very possible. And uh, based on another uh, brief that we have published recently, looking at the experience of other countries like South Africa or Iran, with sanctions uh, similar, broadly similar, not identical to Russia's have been in place, we do see that no matter how harsh an uh, autocratic regime, over time an accumulated fatigue of the society from the economic decline, in Russia's case also multiplied by human loss, hopefully will uh, translate in some sort of disappointment uh, on the side of the public. In case of Iran-South Africa, it took a couple of years. Russia is exceptional, but hopefully not that much. So I guess uh, we'll wait to see. I'll give it some time. Yeah, maybe we kind of overestimated the or underestimated the rally around the flag effect that wars cause. Uh, Michael, maybe uh, closing thoughts from you. Yeah, I would just echo really what Maria says. You have to keep the door open to other possibilities in Russia. uh, And that's really the work of the imagination at the present moment. And that's an important thing to do. But I think the bottom line in terms of policy analysis is that Putin does seem to be intent on keeping going for a long time to come and we'll have the resources and the public support to do so. And so that then puts the ball back on our court in terms of having the patience to work through all of this. And so maybe from an analytical perspective, what we need to bring forward is really the domestic politics of the key countries uh, involved uh, and keep a very intent focus on them, probably United States first and foremost, but France, UK, and the countries, you know, sort of around which the war effort revolves on the Western side, you know, sort of the patience, the political patience and the instruments of of uh, of encouraging and, and, and keeping that going. I think there, the Biden administration could probably do a little bit more. I'd like to see Biden messaging more to the US people about the war, about the need to kind of stick with it, uh, you know, sort of good bipartisan narratives and messaging. And, you know, they've been brilliant uh, on the technical side of supporting Ukraine, the Biden administration. Uh, They have to really, really keep with the political, domestic political component and, you know, sort of conclude there on that note. Yeah, no, I think that's a a good fight. I mean, the one thing, other thing I would say is I think the Biden administration should also be probably a little bit clearer to the Europeans that if we are going to have trouble maintaining our support for Ukraine at the same level, we should convey that to the Europeans because that's where we're right now reassuring everybody, which is great. (laughs) But on the other hand, if we're going to have an issue, it's good to tell them now and and really push them to to gear up and, and to spend more. And I don't necessarily think that that's why Germany decided to announce this big package. But I think there is a clear ability on the European side that sometimes we underestimate to get their defense industries going and, and to maybe not fill the void if we were completely pull out, which I don't think will will happen at least now between tw- uh, uh, 2025. But there there is an ability for them 
them to also continue to ramp up. And that's a good segue to sort of pitch our sister podcast, The Europhile, which is doing a lot on on European uh, defense and the impact that this war is going to have on on the future of Europe. But there's also one episode that we just did that I think will be of particular interest to uh, Russian listeners, where we interviewed uh, Jude Blanchett, an expert here at CSIS, the the Freeman Chair, who focuses on China. And we talked about Russia, China, Europe, China, and what does it mean right now that China is sort of resisting sort of going all in in support of Russia. We had sort of looked at the same issue with the same set of facts from a very different place. And it's a really, I think, interesting conversation to really get a real sense of what Beijing is thinking right now when it comes uh, to the war. So you can check that out at the Europhile. And Maria also mentioned a number of reports that we did recently, one on the impact of sanctions and export controls on the Russian defense industry. We will put those reports in the show notes. With those, all those plugs now done, I want to thank Maria, my co-host, and, and Michael, who will be on this podcast quite a bit for, for joining us today. Thanks a lot, Max. Thanks a million, Max. You've been listening to Russian Roulette. We hope you enjoyed this episode and tune in again soon. Russian Roulette releases new episodes every two weeks on Thursdays and is available wherever you get your podcasts. So please subscribe and share our episodes online. And be sure to check out all the latest analysis by the Europe, Russia, and Eurasia program at csis.org.